Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain academics and certain sentinels of the spaceways into conversation. Today, we are discussing a couple of spectacular cosmic sagas, though one is considerably more earthbound than the other. The stars of this podcast are Jim Starlin's Magus Saga, originally published back in 1975 across Strange Tales and the Warlock solo series. It's a bit confusing. Alongside mm-hmm. Silver Surfer, Volume 3, Number 123 to 138 by J.M. DeMatteis, Ron Garney, and others, originally published in 1996. I am your host for today. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a contract academic at a few different places, including Sheridan College and Brock University, when I'm not talking about sex and gender and superheroes, lots of different places on the internet. And I am joined, as always, by my lovely co-hosts. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a Claremont-oriented project, as the name <laughs> implies. I'm uh, Dr. Michael Hancock. A adjunct instructor at usually the University of Waterloo and Wilfrid Laurier University. And as usual, we will start with some introductions to the texts we're reading today. I think it makes sense to start with you, Andrew, introducing Jim Starlin's Warlock. Take it away. The Mega Sega was published from 1974 to 1976 in the pages of First Strange Tales, number 178 to 181, and then Warlock, 9 to 12. The essential plot can be easily summarized as. Adam Warlock must confront and defeat his corrupt future self. In addition to forming the plot, this also forms the central symbolic conceit, a hard-hitting look at every person's inevitable corruption at the hands of a corrupted world. Think 1984, but with space lasers and a troll. It's then through the methods of corruption that the story becomes complex, perhaps even convoluted, introducing key critical commentary on religion, consumerism, mental health, the frustratingly limited boundaries of human perception, the mythical abstract conflict between life and death itself, with Thanos stealing the show just a bit in that death role, and even some pretty scathing swipes at Marvel as an industry, and some key Marvel personnel as well. The structure of the story, to me, as a literature nerd, is somehow even more interesting. This isn't an Orwellian novel. It's a Greek tragedy in the spirit of Oedipus, a story of a doomed hero facing an impossible quest and made to twist for the audience as a spectacle of human despair. It even ends with a satyr. So think Oedipus, but with billowing capes and gratuitous alien cleavage. Empowered by the most basic attribute of the comics medium, the thought bubble, our golden-skinned Oedipus is able to turn away from the chorus and narrate ad nauseum his every internal despondency and attestation, <laughs> all without interrupting the moment in all of its visual spectacle, ably provided by Jim Starlin's double duty as both writer and penciler. There's a shameless lack of subtlety to Warlock's outcries that really does match the emotional melodrama of an Oedipus or an Orestes. The depth isn't quite there to the same extent, and the story's endless reams of texts are intimidating by the standards of today's comics fair. But this is a story that played a pivotal role in launching the second wave of Marvel Comics cultural relevancy, taking campus culture by storm in the 1970s the same way that Spider-Man did in the 1960s. And for the most part, it holds up really well as a thoughtful piece of imaginative storytelling featuring some now iconic intellectual property. 
And like the best bits of mass media philosophy, enough conceptual conundrums to leave the reader contemplating the story long after they've put it down. Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm really looking forward to getting into some of these excellent um, (laughs) larger themes that you're already introducing. But um, I can't get too distracted because we still need to introduce Silver Surfer. Michael, can you tell us a little bit about this J.M. DeMatteis, Ron Garney comic book? Warning to everyone, this is going to be uh, rough, especially in juxtaposition with Andrew's excellent introduction there. (laughs) Uh, But here we go. Uh, I'm currently, I wrote this introduction with under an hour to go before the podcast. And at the time, I was looking at a blank page. That's not entirely accurate. The problem isn't so much that I have a blank page, so much as I had no idea where the best place to start was. I could talk about my history with Demadius, whom I weirdly know best from his 1980s New Defenders run. I could talk about what this era of comics means to me personally, that we're talking about comics from the 1996 to 97, an era where I was at the mercy of whatever my local small town uh, drugstore decided to stock for the week. Or I could talk about Marvel comics of this era and how they have this underlying tone of sadness to them. Hmm. Uh, But none of those felt quite right as the start. So here's a bunch more starting points that I considered and rejected. My (laughs) feelings on rom-com structuring, the popularity of (laughs) alien abduction stories in the 90s, the 1990s Silver Surfer cartoon, my feeling of discomfort in general with Marvel characters who have their heyday or at least their definitive runs prior to 1995. The contrasts this forms with the more recent uh, Silver Surfer run from Dan Slott, who took a, he's basically Doctor Who, right? Kind of approach. <laughs> so many different starting points, uh, all of which were true, but all of which didn't quite feel like they captured the point. To quote the first cosmically charged clay duplicate of a silver surfer crafted by the puppet master that appears in this run. My mind is in confusion, a farrageo of concepts and images, memories, and emotions overwhelm me. (laughs) So let's start with the basics. Uh, This month, my current task is to introduce you to Silver Surfer Epic Collection Volume 13, also known as Silver Surfer 123 to 138, plus the 97 annual and the minus one issue. The span covers Jada Mattias's run on the title with some authoring help from Greenberg, DeFalco, and Felder. Our duties are mostly Ron Garney, but with some others chipping in, including Carrie Nord, Paul Petier, and Tom Grummet. The background context of the series and for the Marvel Universe at the time is that from 96 to 97, a floundering Marvel outsourced productions of several comic titles to Image, including the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. The in-universe justification of this absence is the heroes were believed to have died fighting Onslaught, a mental amalgamation of Professor Charles Xavier and Magneto. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. In the wake of this loss, we have the Silver Surfer. Now, it occurs to me that some of our listeners might not be familiar with the character, as the only big screen debut he had is not well regarded. So in a nutshell, the Silver Surfer is an alien originally known as Norn Rad, whose planet was about to be destroyed by planet-consuming entity known as Galactus. Norn makes a deal with Galactus where he seeks out other planets to be consumed in exchange for sparing his own. Galactus agreed, imbued Norn with his own power, 
turning him into the Silver Surfer, a silver dude with a surfboard, but stripping his memory of his past in order to make him a more loyal servant. Surfer eventually brings him to Marvel's Earth and then turns against him in part to discussions with blind sculptress Alicia Masters. And he has basically been operating as his own agent since, sometimes stuck on Earth, sometimes uncertain where his own home planet is, and generally a very sad person. At the start of this volume, however, he is not sad and has in fact lost access to his emotions altogether. The setup then is we have a silver surfer who is exploring his past, trying to reconnect with who he was, and Alicia Masters, trying to mourn the loss of the world's heroes, particularly her former lover, Ben Grimm. There are, as is appropriate, cosmic and mundane level threats, a cavalcade of Marvel guest stars from Namorita to Spider-Man to Mephisto, but the core of the series is the two of them and their relationship to themselves and to each other. If this has been a comic on my drugstore wall, if I'm being totally honest, I don't know if my 13-year-old self would have been a fan. I think he would have found it too slow, wordy, bound up in characters over action. And yet, even though I don't know where to start in my own presentation of it, my current self enjoyed it very much. Demanius's two leads make excellent surrogates for the reader. We have the surfer, uncertain of how to feel, and Alicia in mourning. And even though the reader would know these heroes have survived, the reader of the era might be feeling both of these approaches, uncertain how to relate to a Marvel universe minus their familiar heroes. Surfer's exploration of his past, particularly in the early part of the series, is a great way to catch up readers who are less familiar with the character, reminding us of his history with characters like the Fantastic Four and Defenders. The second half, while lagging in places, culminates very nicely, with a certain Rocky guest star really drawing things to a nice close. Pun honestly not intended. To sum up then, I'm not certain how I feel about the series, not entirely. It raised a lot of different ideas, a lot of different feelings. But that ambiguity isn't bad. To end on another surfer quotation, the opposites within us don't have to tear us apart. They can coexist, and we can make peace with them. But that uh, rivalry still makes for a pretty good story. I'm like so like (laughs) I'm so swooning at this description of this series and it's very romantic themes which are obviously a huge selling point for me we've done an episode about superhero romance before and I've been wanting to work this Silver Surfer (laughs) series into the podcast for a long time now Um, we didn't it occurs to me we didn't talk about in your intro, Andrew, um, Warlock's origin story. And since Michael touched on <laughs> Silver Surfers, are you interested in touching briefly on Warlock's origin before we kind of get into the comparison between these two texts? It has been so many years since I read it. Do you want to do the honors? <laughs> Well, we get a recounting of it in this series where he's created by this team of scientists to kind of, it's actually quite related to the Silver Surfer series because he's created by this team of scientists to be like the perfect man and rebels against them and then becomes this cosmic being. And uh, yeah, he goes through some different... Yeah, and the, there's Earth, let's not yeah. even talk about that. Yeah, he becomes kind of this god <laughs> on other Earth and then frees the human animals from their enslavement by making them back into animals and then, yeah, it's becomes, yeah. <laughs> an amazingly unsubtle Christ allegory. Barely yes. allegory. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, but then when we have Jim Starlin take over the character, we have him not do something different necessarily, but do something that's a more interesting kind of evolution of some of the themes that were there in terms of having him confront his dark self and everything. Anyway, the important thing is the origin of Warlock is not that relevant to the story that we have here, but worth mentioning because even though both of these characters have a certain prominence in the Marvel Universe. Warlock in particular hasn't yet appeared in any live action adaptations. So if you're listening to this and have no idea who the character is, this is a little bit about who the character is. Yeah, Sean Howe in um, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, had a really good line about it saying that, that Warlock had become this Christ figure, exactly as you describe. And then when Jim Starlin takes over, Starlin is a, quote, recovering Catholic mm -hmm. uh, and very much uses Warlock as his way to sort of lash out um, at religion by taking this this religious figure in Marvel Comics and turning him inside out. Oh, there's some I, I didn't cover this in my outline, but there's some obvious uh, relevant uh, comparisons to the Silver Surfer too. There, but mm -hmm. uh, he also has a church in his in this particular run. For sure. Well, why don't we take that as as, as a starting point then? Because I was going to ask the both of you about sort of what makes a cosmic superhero different from, you know, a quote unquote regular superhero, because although there's a lot of overlap in the Marvel universe between sort of characters who exist in the cosmic part of the universe and the quote unquote regular part of the universe, there's still kind of a distinct flavor to cosmic characters. A lot of the time, they often tend to be more philosophical, more sort of mm -hmm. dealing with big ideas, sort of more on the science fiction side of things versus sort of the action adventure side of things that we see more often in the regular universe although obviously with generous helpings of sci-fi as well so i mean starting with you maybe andrew what do you think makes sort of a cosmic superhero like adam warlock different from that quote-unquote regular superhero what stands out as kind of unique about a comic like this compared to other things that existed at that time or in general I think maybe exactly as you were saying, I think there's a way in which these cosmic heroes kind of embody the existential dread associated with a broader cosmology in general, right? Uh, again, the kind of things that H.P. Lovecraft writes about. If space is infinite, holy shit, my world is big. Yeah. Uh, and it, that, that forces a sort of existentialism. So, so I think having a protagonist who um, um, can traverse that larger world already kind of disarms us and makes us want to think more about our place in the universe. So why not just have the protagonist do that for us, right? Um, there's a, a, a thematic kind of coherence to that. Um, so I, I think Warlock is very good at that. I, I think he's, I mean, at this time period, I, I know Surfer predates him a lot. Um, Marvel's most existentialist hero. Uh, and Starlin was all in on that. He really wanted to use Warlock to just, I mean, launch into like a first year existentialist philosophy class. Uh, and he absolutely does. It's funny to me because as much as I, I have a fondness for the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, like I don't hate them, but it seems so different from what I usually get out of Marvel Cosmic in terms of it being such a like philosophical place about existential crises, whereas in the movies <laughs> they go a real Star Wars route with it, which is not unlike the version of the Guardians of the Galaxy comic that the movies are largely based on. But still, I feel like it's notable that Adam Warlock has been absent from those stories. But uh, Michael, did you have thoughts about that question about where the Silver Surfer fits in with this context of cosmic heroes? I mean, I'm thinking about his first appearance where we he prompts Johnny Storm to have the you know realization that we're nothing but ants right in the cosmic scheme which really relates to what Andrew was saying uh this is where I can flee my uh post 
95, (laughs) lack of knowledge that uh, I have never read the original Silver Surfer. You haven't read the Galactus trilogy? I have not. It's so good. It is good. It is good. (laughs) But uh, I, I really like the contrast that you set up there, that Marvel Cosmic has this two different strands to it, the mm-hmm. high-level Silver Surfer and Warlock stuff and the more space adventure stuff that the um, Guardians of the Galaxy go after. And I think uh, particularly the recent Al Ewing run has done some interesting things to merge the two, but in general, they're very split in the, in the way that like it's very easy to transplant Rocket Raccoon onto earth uh, because in a way he doesn't really seem that far from that type of hero, mm-hmm. but I kind of talked myself into a corner there because uh, <laughs> the logical next thing to follow there is that it would be hard to translate these cosmic characters onto earth when this uh, particular run of silver yeah. surfer <laughs> is almost entirely set on earth. Uh, but no, it, if you move the cosmic character like that to earth, it becomes a much more grounded thing. Silver Surfer mm-hmm. is not fighting the local supervillains for most of this title. He is exploring his own limits and boundaries, sometimes quite literally. He would occasionally go to the like ground level, but he isn't fighting on the level of, I don't know, the local bank heist or something. That is just not fitting in with the kind of approach in order to explore yourself, you need a lot more contemplative characters and characters that kind of fit that rank better. Hmm. Well, yeah. And I mean, there aren't really a lot of physical threats to the Silver Surfer. I mean, there are in this comic, we see him threatened by a mysterious set of aliens called the Other and threatened by Mephisto to a certain extent, but that's after he's dead. So that's a whole thing. Mm -hmm. But um. But yeah, so then the conflicts become internal conflicts, right? I mean, and that's very much the case with Warlock, where we see him battling a version of himself, because who else would he oppose when he has all of this power, right? And that's such an advantage of comics. You can literalize the internal struggle by turning it into external struggles. I think that's a point of distinction between our two texts to some degree, because like Jim Starlin's Warlock, yes, he's in outer space, but outer space is largely just metaphorical space for... Uh, again, existential earthling problems. Um, there's something that's sort of insincere about it in contrast to what we get in the Silver Surfer most of the time. I'm interested in that, Andrew, because we could talk about setting here in terms of these being two, I framed them as cosmic comic books, but of course you're right, Michael, that the Silver Surfer cosmic, uh, the Silver Surfer comic books are set largely on Earth with you know occasional forays into space, as you would expect. But Tell me a little bit more about that, Andrew. Like, how do you think space is being used here or not being used as part of this exploration of Warlock's interiority? I was interested in some of the little critiques you're bringing up about it being very uh, wordy and introspective, sometimes in (laughs) impenetrable ways. And I think it's worth unpacking that because it definitely is. I mean, those long, long recaps that we have at the beginning of each issue, like making sure the reader knows exactly what happened previously. And that's interesting too, right? Because there's 
a presumption that the reader might not have read the previous issue because he's very much trying to tell like a saga, like a heavily serialized story, and is clearly very worried that people aren't going to have had the other parts of it. And that worry yeah. is probably justified given it occurs across like two completely different comic book series at like random points in the run. But yeah, <laughs> getting back to that context question, did this story even have to be set in space? I don't think so. Lately, I, I would argue you could easily do this in a fantasy setting. You could easily do a time travel to the 1940s setting uh, and still engage with a lot of those themes. Um, again, for me, the value of cosmic is the capacity to disarm, to present it as a cosmic soap opera, um, space opera, I should say, um, rather than, again, an existentialist interior melodrama. Um, he, he's monologuing a lot. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah. like, like just constantly well fighting people it's it's kind of cool like again it's it's an interesting way to update the sort of traditional greek tragedy it's greek tragedy is a comic book i i love that idea i think that's where a lot of the delight comes in but like is the space actually exploring anything resembling hard science fiction no not at all there's some big words thrown in there that sound science fictiony um, but like nothing about this is is rational or physics based or astrophysics based in, in in any way, shape, or form. Well, let's get into what some of Warlock's internal conflicts are. Then, I mean, we've mentioned religion. I think masculinity is something that we could also talk about in terms of his understanding of himself as the perfect man and what that means but yeah what do you see as sort of his motivating conflicts here and that's both like an obvious question and a really complicated question so i'll leave it to you to choose how you would like to answer i think for me the biggest like sort of um, um, aspect of his character that that's really being explored is just the simple concept of individuality mm -hmm. uh, and how individuality gets stamped out by you know the collective society uh, and there's other things tied to that like creativity uh, and agency but but really it's about a, a man trying to hold on to himself uh, in the face of all these other kind of um, forces tugging at him including his future um, and, and that's where it gets kind of nicely you know complicated and we start to think about how that applies to our own world and reality um, so yeah no I, I think that's really what a lot of it boils down to but those those forces out there there's a lot of social critique within those forces, right? Like, like it's not just an abstract force. It's, as I said, you know, consumerism and um, um, fundamentalist religion uh, and, and all these other various kind of, I don't know, social ills that we might talk about um, in, you know, again, another first year, like sociology class. Um, I don't know. This thing feels so undergrad to me, like freshman undergrad yeah. specifically. And I'm not saying that as an insult. I love that about it. Uh, again, the level of ideas that, that Starlin is able to inject into a popular medium in the early 1970s. It's very raw and passionate. And I think if you respond yeah. well to it, you respond to those aspects of it. I mean, and I think the fact that he's writing and drawing, it helps there too. You know, he's really putting his thoughts on paper, like very, like literally, and in this very emotional, passionate way that I think really comes across. But in terms of mm -hmm. like, you brought up the Oedipus thing and the Greek tragedy angle and everything, but let's talk about how much that worked for us kind of on an emotional level or on a dramatic level, because this is a story in which we're told basically at the beginning of the story exactly what's going to happen and 
then we're dealing with how to make sure that doesn't happen in every subsequent issue. I found it very effective in terms of drama, like in terms of that countdown mm-hmm. that we get toward the end of he's only got two hours left before he's driven <laughs> insane. Like, I mean, how did you respond to that, Andrew? Did you find it effective to, to, to tell this story in this unconventional way? I mean, it's unconventional and conventional because obviously it's a very, very, very old way of telling a story, but it's unconventional in this space in which we wouldn't normally have that. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I, I mean, I I study Chris Claremont, who famously tortures his characters, um, but but to get a character as tortured as Warlock with the depth of interiority, again, all these internal monologues that we get from Warlock, um, that creates a ton of tension. As does um, the Magus thing, Magus thing, the the thing where you're going to become this. So now you're fighting your own destiny. Um, and I actually kind of love the conceit that we get left with at the end of this. The idea that in a little while, you're going to have to kill yourself. So you have a few months until you show up to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Star Wars doing some really cool things. It was a really interesting ending, too, that like it would have been easy to put you to do a kind of you triumphed over evil. But it's yeah. almost just as grim. Yeah, yeah I agree. Getting in. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that, right? Because, I mean, the conclusion that we have is that by killing the the Magus, who is this force of life, supposedly, he has ensured the victory of death in the form of Thanos. Yep. So you can't, you can't win in this space. The other thing about Warlock is every time he dies, we just find a cocoon a few years later and yeah. here's Warlock yeah. again. Yeah, so, yeah, it was a lot of... That was the one part of it that it's not that it didn't work for me because I think the kind of nihilism of it and the pointlessness of it was very effective because it is this story in which everything that you do to try to, as you were saying, Andrew, assert your individuality, assert your agency is inevitably going to be useless because there's always a cosmic force that's larger than you. Right. And that's like what you have in that infinity of space. I mean, you brought up the Lovecraft thing, you know, if we exist in this infinity of space, you know, like, holy shit, it's so big. How can we even comprehend it? And one of the conceits of the Warlock series is that we couldn't, it would drive us insane. Mm-hmm. Let's sort of loop the Silver Surfer into this conversation, Michael, by talking about what mm-hmm. his internal conflicts are. And, uh, you know, you can base it on this series because I think the internal conflicts he has in this series are pretty consistent with the conflicts that he has across his across his history in, in most cases. So what did you right. think were his driving conflicts here? So I'm going to say this as if I am very well familiar with uh, Silver Surfer's frequent uh, history, which I've already established I am not. But uh, I I do think that he's one of the characters who often returns to this notion of kind of an original sin, that Surfer made a deal with Galactus to spare his own planet, but as a result, even though he had different intentions at the time, went on to condemn we don't know how many other planets to the to galactus's consumption and this series puts a twist on that in a way and you'll have to correct me if i get this plot wrong uh but my understanding is that uh he in particular has repressed the destruction of zenla shortly after or at some point in the 1940s by the other. Mm-hmm. And he is basically dealing with the emotional backlash of that, that he is struggling. He has repressed this to the point where he can't have access to any of his emotions at all. 
And so he's going on a sort of personal quest to recover at least access to those emotions, if not exactly the memories that he doesn't know he's missing. Yeah, it's complicated because I think the other, or maybe the second weakest part of this run, uh, that they're not really very much there except as a figurative threat, uh, the weakest part incidentally being Scryer. Yes. <laughs> yes, agreed. I, I, no argument for me there. <laughs> Lots of rando people showing up to move the plot forward toward the end of this run, mm. which, you know, is an unfortunate kind of way to... <laughs> I mean, it doesn't end. Um, it continues with, with another story arc after this with some mm. um, art by oh, Don Muth, which is really, really beautiful. And I very much mm. recommend that to our listeners as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love that conflict, though, that we have with the Silver Surfer between, I mean, again, and I want to link this to gender in that case, especially because especially because of the soap opera nature of his conflict here. And, you know, the fact that he doesn't have access to his emotions, the fact that he searches out Alicia, the person who helped him rediscover his humanity the first time. Hmm. And OK, like the thing that I really love about this as a setup for this series is that it's very fan fiction-y, but in a good way, the way you're like, okay, we had this setup with Silver Surfer and Alicia back in that original introduction of the Silver Surfer, where there's a suggested romantic aspect of their interaction. And then finally, so many years later, we're seeing sort of the implications of that teased out. And I think teased out quite well. I mean... <laughs> there's some things silver surfers always kind of flying off and leaving alicia in terrible situations and i mean if i was a real woman in this kind of situation i'd be like i don't know if i want to hang out with this person anymore but at the same time i think it's in a very affecting romance and in, in other ways and it's certainly something i want to talk about a little bit more but did you have thoughts about that andrew about silver surfers internal conflicts yeah, sort of okay so I'm generalizing a bit here, but um, this is a character who's been around since the 1960s, um, and I, I love him when he's written well, and I hate him when he's written in a way that I don't agree with for whatever reason. And I think I side with like Jack Kirby on this again. If you've read sort of Marvel history, um, he really wanted Surfer to be this kind of like pensive, dark, stoic character on this again existential exploration for his emotions. So seeing Demetrius exactly as you said, Anna, take up these older threads. Uh, and sort of, to my mind, like bring Surfer back to his original incarnation. Like I, I was loving it. I was loving the internal monologue. I was loving the way he was approaching problems. I was loving this literal quest for emotions and memories and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then he said a lot of it being grounded in that Alicia relationship. Um, I, like, eh. I feel like I might be forgetting something, but this might be my favorite iteration of the character as a character yeah I, I think that that's very valid i think it's probably my favorite too in terms of the way that it combines that philosophical pensive nature of the silver surfer with yeah. that emotional core mine too although i mostly only have the uh slot run to compare it to <laughs> well, I mean, there's been a lot of other Silver Surfer stories that I've really enjoyed. I really enjoyed the the Steve Englehart run. Um, Jim Starlin wrote some memorable stories yes. with him as well. Um, but he's also been a character that's been taken up as the mouthpiece of Stan Lee in a number of hmm. graphic novels and sort of miniseries and things, which, uh, you know, like, I can see <laughs> why. Like, it's clear that Stan gravitated towards him as this character 
character who could represent what he wanted Marvel Comics to represent, you know, as these troubled heroes questing after high philosophical problems, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of using the Silver Surfer to make a case for comics as art. And you were bringing up before we started the podcast, Andrew, how it was actually a Stan Lee and Jack Kirby Silver Surfer graphic novel from 1978, which, you know, is one of the first graphic novels. And so it's interesting that they chose this character. And it's the last time that Stan and Jack worked together, too. I mean, to choose this character to have kind of this prestige format. And I mean, even when we think back to the original um, Silver Surfer series with Stan Lee and John Bushima, like that was very much a prestige series, like before the idea of a prestige series even existed. So this is a character that is often sort of brought up in these contexts of, (laughs) you know, this is the I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to say like that he's at the center of the Marvel universe because I don't think that's a justifiable claim. He's too much like on the fringes of that universe. But in terms of sort of the high-minded ideas that Stan Lee wanted his comics to convey, the Silver Surfer always seems to be at the center of that. Yeah, Stan Lee actually had a rule at Marvel that said you're not allowed to write the Surfer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was, was he was his. a hands-off character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, and, and like, mm-hmm. and again, speaking to what you were just talking about, like the the creative collaborations, Jean Giraud was recruited mm-hmm. to make a Silver Surfer story with Stan Lee, Mobius. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. ah, Lee loved this character so much, and Kirby loved the character so much. Um, Kirby would famously say um, something along the lines of, "I'm not going to give you another Surfer" or something like that when he was fighting in court for creative rights. So you have this character who is interpreted two different ways, clearly, exactly as you're saying, Anna. Um, by the founders of Marvel Comics as we know it. Uh, there's just so much love invested in him. And I kind of weirdly like feel that, I don't know, ripple effect. Uh, so when they get him right, and I think they really got him right in this volume, it makes me like really happy. And I don't know why. <laughs> Well, can I get us to talk a little bit more? I do want to get back to Warlock, but can I get us to talk a little bit more about the Surfer and Alicia romance and what it kind of does for us? Because, I mean, as we've mentioned a couple of times and Michael mentioned in his intro, it's really the fulcrum of this series, right? I mean, that's what starts the entire story going is him going to Alicia to kind of rediscover his emotions. And you brought up, you know, rom-coms in your introduction as well, Mm -hmm. Michael. How did you kind of respond to this relationship? What did you think was interesting or affecting about it, if you thought it was interesting or affecting? So it's got the romance part of a rom-com, but I don't think it really has the comedy part. (laughs) Not Uh, not so much. Even Starlin Starlin goes a lot closer to comedy, and that's not really comedy either. Uh, But uh, I recently saw the rom-com sci-fi time loop movie uh, Palm Springs, which if you haven't seen it, the premise is basically uh, two characters are stuck in a time loop and both of them have parallel but related issues to work out that the male character is a very laissez-faire type and basically needs to be pushed into finding a direction and the female partner character her thing is that she is bound up in a lot of self-loathing and both of those work very well metaphorically with the time loop that he is reliving the same day because he doesn't have the wherewithal to create something different she is reliving her shame over and over again and i love that that to me is the essence of a rom-com not 
time loops, which would create a very weird subgenre. But um, using the events as kind of a metaphor to get at both something that the character has to get over, but also something that they help each other through, that both of them have something in their response that helps the other in reaching their fullest selves. And I think that <laughs> is what we see in this book, that the whole cosmic adventure, even the others to an extent, are kind of a metaphorical way for these two characters to deal with their own personal history, but specifically through their relationship to each other as well. And even wow. that is excellently said, Michael. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about their relationship to the Fantastic Four as well, and even mm -hmm. just to the concept of superheroism, right? I mean, as you mentioned, it ends with Ben Grimm giving his okay for Alicia and Silver Surfer to explore their romance. Um, and yeah, just in case you were wondering, the next issue, like beyond the one that we're reading, is the one where they finally quite explicitly have sex. <laughs> so like, yeah, not explicitly, explicitly, but you know, he takes her through the window and then like de-silver on the bed and then they embrace so yeah you know as explicit as we're gonna get in this era um but um yeah i just oh, i love the alicia thing in this comic i'm gonna make my like little pitch for it i'm not gonna talk like a lot in this episode but i've always been fascinated by her as a character because she's mm -hmm. a, a because of the basic facts of the character she's a blind sculptress who makes sculptures of all of the superheroes which, what does that mean in terms of her relationships with the superheroes, right? She must be touching them because that must be how she models them. That must, to me, be a significant component of her attachment to Ben, the way he is this, like, sculptural figure. And back in the original comics, she's more attached to him as the thing than as Ben. And, you know, there's an emotional component to that. You know, the conceit of the story is Alicia is blind, therefore conceive the truth in people, and Ben is his best self when he's the thing versus when he's Ben Grimm and that's part of it and you know ableist tropes etc but at the same time there's this other reading of it where she's more attracted to his body in that form and I'm very attached to that reading of the story and very intrigued by that reading of the story and there's so much going on here in this series that kind of brings that to the fore where we see her in her apartment with these sculptures of the superheroes and interacting with a sculpture of Ben that is at the foot of her bed and then a sculpture of the silver <laughs> surfer that's next to him and touching them and fondling them and thinking about her relationship with them. And so if we think about the context of the comic book, Alicia must be a fine artist. Like she's constructing high art in the sense that she's modeling these heroic figures who are, you know, the kind of people that you would make public sculptures of if superheroes were real and yet if we think about it from the context of our world she's a fangirl she's making sculptures of superheroes that she has you know certain kinds of emotional or romantic relationships with and then we get you know this almost like fanfic fantasy heart's desire thing where one of the superheroes of her dreams falls through the skylight in her apartment onto her couch and it becomes a hurt comfort fanfic Hmm. like there's so much here that's just like ah get out of my brain this is exactly like what I want <laughs> and what I want to kind of explore and I've always been particularly fascinated with the surfer as well too as a character who really plays with subject and objecthood and like objectification within the genre in terms of his visualization but also his characterization because 
you know, he doesn't even have a costume, right? He's just this silver, Mm -hmm. beautiful statue guy whose perfection and beauty is so emphasized again and again and again. And there's so much going on there in terms of that and sort of what that offers Alicia, sort of the contrast between Ben and the surfer, but the fact that they're also men who potentially don't have a traditional sexuality. I talk about superhero penises from time to time. So the fact that these are two men who potentially don't have penises is interesting to me in terms of her sort of erotic connection to these figures and what their sexuality might mean on a practical level. Although the Silver Surfer can be whoever he wants or do whatever he wants. I don't think that that would be a huge drawback for him. But I don't know. There's a lot going on here in terms of the ways that this series foregrounds a female gaze and a female perspective that I just really, really love. And yeah, that's that's my little spiel about Alicia. Can I just point out that Anna has won awards for talking about superhero <laughs> penises? That's important. <laughs> yeah, I'll have that on my resume forever, I suppose. <laughs> but um, yeah. I have a question about the relationship that I wanted to throw at Anna and maybe Michael as well, if he has some thoughts on it. Um. The trapping that I think the Alicia Surfer relationship can fall into is the the very sort of archetypal notion of a men looking at women as um, a, a way to emotionally heal them, yeah, and, and b the specific sort of um, pairing of men can be stoic because they have this woman in their life that they're sharing their life with who will carry the burden of feeling the yeah, emotions yeah. and reacting to the things in their life. So my question is. Um, how do you think this particular pairing avoids that if it does? I don't think it completely avoids that. That's the central conceit of the series, but I think it mm-hmm. avoids it to the extent that Alicia isn't like a hysterically emotional character. I mean, yeah. she's, she's, she is in that role of having to feel for him in a sense, but the one who's the emotionally hysterical one is definitely Norrin Rad. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> so, because I mean, part of the conceit of his character is that he is such a deeply, deeply, deeply emotional character. And this is what causes most of his problems. So I think that that's present. And yet I'm still interested in the way that Michael framed it as their characters that can play off of each other and make each other more complicated than they would be alone. And I think the merging mm-hmm. of them and it, it becomes a literal merging in this comic. And I love that it does, you know, it becomes him stepping into her body and her becoming like a female presenting version of the Silver Surfer in the conflict with Mephisto. That's sort of the climax of this run. I wish we had more of it because it's really kind of a brief moment, but I love the idea of it very dearly. But yeah, I I don't think it completely falls into that trap, although it definitely conceptually does. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a straightforward answer to it because I, you know, I'm going to fall back on the thing that like, yeah, it's problematic. And yeah, I also like it in terms of the ways that they're sort of discovering a bigger and better versions of each other through their relationship. And, you know, he does still get to be that stoic character. And yet one of my favorite pages from this entire run is from, I know what issue it is. It's number 126, The Barrier, where Dr. Strange restores some of his emotion to him, to the Silver Surfer for just a moment. And we have that wonderful page that's a close-up of his face and a close-up of a single tear coming down his face. Very similar <laughs> to even an Android Can Cry, the old Vision yeah. splash page, right? I mean, not rendered the same way, but the, the idea is very similar. So I don't know, in terms of emotions being a spectacle in this series, Silver Surfer is definitely the target of that more than Alicia is. And maybe that makes it a little bit better. No, that that works for me. I think the other um, piece of it is that this might be a trope that's only a problem when it's a generalization. 
You know what I mean? Like it's it's a good conceit. There are some relationships like that that are not mm-hmm. unhealthy relationships. It's just that's the thing that we see all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in isolation, yeah, it's a cool idea. It's a it, it's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. Maybe I don't. Know. Well, and I mean, also the kind of things that Surfer offers her, and I mean, her blindness is complicated in this. I think that there's mm-hmm. different ways that they do some interesting things with this, in, in terms of different ways of seeing and stuff that aren't terrible, but then when she gets her vision restored and taken away again it's like uh, especially when surfer does it even though he does it when he doesn't have access to his emotions so it is meant to be a dark cruel moment and i understand Mm -hmm. that but it still is very dark and cruel um and then you know the fact that it's played as so cruel has certain ideas about blindness as punishment bound up in it and there's there's just a lot Mm -hmm. of stuff that we can talk about surrounding that um but at the same time, the way that, and this is a role that Surfer often plays, right? He is that figure who comes and usually, like, usually a woman, you know, sweeps her up on his surfboard into an adventure. And that's interesting in terms of him allowing women to share his freedom with him. And Hmm. I think that that's a part of it, too, that appeals to me. I mean, it's very, I'm not going to say that it's not generic, but it's still appealing to have, like, in this genre where women aren't spoken to, where women aren't represented, where our perspectives aren't considered to stay like, here's this male superhero who's going to take you on the adventure with him. And you don't have to stay home and be the traditional female figure. You can come on this adventure and that's what he wants because he's a very romantic character who wants that in his life. And that's very affecting to me in terms of making me feel kind of included in the space. And again, not perfect. Definitely, definitely, definitely not perfect, but I still find it very affecting. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense and actually compares nicely to some of the things that you've written about Nightcrawler too. It does. There's a reason why (laughs) these are two of my favorite characters. (laughs) The ways that they sort of like welcome female gazes and welcome women into their adventures are very important to me. Uh, I was recently reading uh, Rick Remender's Rage of Ultron. And uh, (laughs) yeah, and uh, I believe it's Kurt Busiek writes the intro for that. And he mentions that Ultron is the character is a character who tells us over and over again that he is beyond flesh emotion while being incredibly emotionally bound mm-hmm. in all his actions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that I I was thinking while I was reading it how much that applies even in these issues to the surfer, that he seems to be acting from a deep, like emotionally angry place, even when he's claiming to not have access to any emotions. And that's a very common masculinized trope, uh, the, mm. the kind of Spock relation to the world. This is often a very gendered role. The mm. specificity of the characters pushes me past it a bit, but it was it's still there. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's a very ungenerous reading of the Silver Surfer, which I think it's ungenerous, but I think it's also affecting because we've all been teenagers and we've all had these heightened teenage emotions where he's an idealistic but angry teenage boy and that's his character. And, you know, part of his maturity and the reason that 
women are always present is that he has to mature into sexual maturity to like get a handle on his excessive emotions and that's very strongly present in a lot of Silver Surfer runs. I mean the start of the Engelhart run is him having this argument in space with Mantis of him being like no I don't have sexuality anymore I promise I don't it's not important to me and she's like I don't believe you you're totally into me (laughs) and they have this like very intense space argument and then land on like a meteor together and get it on and then he's much better after that (laughs) so I mean that's something that's going I mean this entire kind of like server Alicia romance him rediscovering his emotions you know as I mentioned climaxes and them merging bodies and then having a more traditional sexual union in the in the aftermath of that so that is kind of the story arc but i mean i i don't hate that though because i mean doing all of this work all of this emotional work to develop that bond between the characters i mean that's what a romance does right and so i i i I don't think it's necessarily bad although there's always going to be problematic tropes bound up in that when we're talking about this genre and just pop culture in general let's get let's put this over to Warlock and talk about some of the supporting characters and sort of relationships that we have there because we haven't talked about any of the other characters in that series other than mentioning (laughs) Thanos briefly. So I'll put it to you, Andrew. What do some of our supporting characters offer us in the Warlock series? And you can focus on whoever you want. We have the introduction of Gamora here and Pip the Troll and memorable appearance by Thanos who feels very unfinished in terms of how he is here versus how he'll be even in a few years time and some other stories but thoughts on that about what the supporting characters do for us yeah i I don't think they're very strong as you said like i think pip is just a bald-faced kind of lazy comic relief character he's the worst he's the worst uh and gamora i i'm a fan of gamora in some of her contemporary um incarnations uh and this is a really disappointing opening she doesn't do a goddamn thing she's just there i'm assuming because some editor passed jim starlin a note saying could you put a sexy alien in here she has no purpose um i don't know i I think for an author of starlin's esteem i I would like to see him write his female characters better um so that was disappointing um uh, i'd be curious to hear more what you were saying about thanos um I liked him here. I thought he was pretty good. He added a nice new new layer to the fundamental dualism that the story was exploring. I think just he seems more emotional than he is in some later appearances, and that sort of lessens his menace in some ways. Okay, less gravity then. He's into death, but he's not in love with death yet. Mm. And that's what's missing for me. (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of missing that psychosexual component that it will later acquire, which I do think makes it more interesting. Yeah, I think maybe the three of us are are tacitly agreeing that Infinity Gauntlet Thanos is the best Thanos. I haven't read it, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to, Michael, honestly. I mean, it's, it's... It is what it is, but um, I will recommend you some, I'll recommend you after the pod, some (laughs) Silver Surfer um, Thanos stories by Starlin, which I actually prefer. But um, but yeah, the introduction of Gamora, I I know what you're saying, like you're completely right. It's a lackluster introduction, though I was intrigued by the setup of it, you know, how she's the most dangerous woman in the galaxy and there's a lot of mystery surrounding her. So there's a lot of potential and I do think he does some better things with her later on. Um, But yeah, in terms of this particular introduction, it's definitely not the best. Mm -hmm. I appreciate what Pip does in terms of a foil for Adam Warlock. 
Um, I prefer it when a character more like Raccoon has the role, so it's less sexual leering, but otherwise... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's one of those sort of uncomfortable misogynist characters who, you know, that's the joke and that plays a certain way, you know, <laughs> 40 odd years later. But um, but what about the relationship then between Adam and his other self? And I mean, we've been talking about it thematically, but how did you enjoy sort of some of those interactions between Warlock and the, and the mages? I mean, were they affecting? I mean... The Magus has a problem where he's such a ridiculously goofy character that <laughs> your ability to kind of, yeah, you know, to take it seriously might be impacted by that or not, or maybe that's just part of the enjoyment of it. But I don't know. Did you have any any thoughts about that, Andrew? Okay, so I, I did like the two-stage thing, the, the Wizard of Oz component, where mm -hmm. the real Magus is just, you know, a dark-skinned version of, of Adam. Um, I did like kind of the way that Magus treats adam warlock like an immature child mm. uh just you know you're just being petulant you're a stupid idiot and you're doing exactly what i want you to do haha ha, ha. like that kind of villainous conceit i think could be read a lot more cheesy um but but within the context of you know the severity of warlock's internal monologue and all that kind of stuff i, I do like that the villain is just kind of um brushing him aside you're doing exactly what i want you to do uh, all these emotions that you think are you know hatred directed towards me they're actually leading you to become me i thought that was kind of cool so there were some scenes mm -hmm. in like in the battles that i kind of liked between them i thought that also kind of fizzled out towards the climax uh, and may just becomes um, more of like your typical i'll get you out of morlock ha 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 villain guy I mean, the thing that I don't like about a lot of cosmic battles and cosmic characters in general is how vague their powers are. And I don't, I mean, I've read a lot of Thanos comics. I can't really tell you what his powers are. He's got sort of energy fists and personal shielding and can teleport sometimes, but, and is super strong, presumably. <laughs> yeah, strong. And yeah, but I mean, it's always hard to know how those things operate in these spaces where often like laws of physics don't even apply so you know if they're just having these battles like in outer space what does that even mean when you're like aiming a laser fist in one direction in curved space i just don't even it's best not to think about it too much but i think that can sometimes for me be a drawback of some of the action scenes within these spaces because there's such an opportunity to do really interesting out there action scenes and i think some of the ones that we have in this comic are really great but um but yeah still conceptually i sometimes get a little bit hung up on that yeah you need a sense of their like limitations and the potential consequences mm -hmm. I do like the soul gem as maybe contributing to that, knowing that Warlock could end the fight at any point in time, but it will cost him a piece of his soul to do so. That's nice. I can't believe we didn't talk about that until now is this whole soul <laughs> gem thing, because that's such an important conflict of this entire thing. Do you want to say any more about it, Andrew, in terms of that being one of his structuring conflicts? Yeah, I could tie it into the existentialist metaphor, the idea that you can win, but it'll cost you a piece of your soul. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you mean you can you can write a crappy Marvel comic that's uninspired, but it'll cost you a piece of your soul. <laughs> oh. uh, I'm not talking about this comic. Sorry, I'm talking about Starlin's critique of the other Marvel comics, the Tower mm -hmm. of Junk, as he describes it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so so I, I think that's a nice kind of universal metaphor. Um, that it's not about winning or losing; it's about your your methods and how those methods affect you, because that's ultimately what'll bring you to the Magus.
Well, do we want to talk as sort of, because I know we've gone probably about an hour at this point, do we want to talk about about visualization in both of these series a little bit? Question about the Starlin that I'd like to pose to you too, based on that. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Go ahead. There's, especially in the terms of the visuals, that there's an element of camp to Starlin's work here. Oh. Like I'm thinking of, well, I mean, Magus in particular, but yeah. also, yeah, yeah. but even the Thanos and his poses and Adam Warlock, like we've got two, we've got a superhero and a supervillain in short shorts here. Well, I mean, you know, there's often kind of like a David Bowie in space thing that's sort of attached to Adam Warlock. And I mean, even in the later Guardians comics, we have their spaceship being called the Bowie. So, I mean, I don't think it's inaccurate to say that there's a glam rock influence on Mm -hmm. the nature of the space that we have here. It's always, as you both know, really hard to decide on the intentionality of camp within the superhero genre in which camp is so often unintentional. So I'm not sure if I would want to make an argument of an intentionality there, but it's definitely I think it was Sontag herself who said that camp has to be unaware. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in terms of us reading it as camp and having that traditional kind of camp awareness, but you can also have intentional camp as well. So, I mean, I felt like you were kind of asking us, did you think that Starlin was putting those elements there on purpose? Chapter three, enter the redemption principle and Thanos, like just holding a finger up in the air while he's mm-hmm. like struts. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, I don't know. Yeah, I am intrigued by an element of like Starlin's warlock in the way that it does kind of a high low thing. You know, it's very conscious of producing this story in a quote unquote low cultural medium and incorporating yeah. these high minded ideals into that medium. So that could be part of it. I mean, I like Starlin's art, but it's definitely very overblown and, yeah, campy and very deliberate as well, right? And so maybe that's kind of what you're getting at there, that there is an intentionality there. I don't know that it's like a completely thought out intentionality or not. I don't know that I'm prepared to make an argument Mm -hmm. about that, but it's certainly present as an element of the story and present in, again, one of those ways that I think you're either going to love it or hate it if you're able to go along with (laughs) that that's additive to this destabilizing story or if you're just gonna like laugh at it and say this is cheesy and i can't buy in yeah i think my comparison would be to steranko um, yeah more than anyone else before starlin i I feel like the draftsmanship is there um and i would argue steranko's got a whole lot of camp to him so maybe osmosis i I, yeah i definitely see that comparison it's it's i think that starlin's gonna come off badly in that comparison (laughs) Um, but at the same time, like, yeah, that's a, that's a worthwhile comparison. I mean, other thoughts about kind of the visualization of either texts. Like I, I really love the Ron Garney Silver Surfer artwork. You know, there's Mm -hmm. a grace and vulnerability to how he draws them that I really, really enjoy. But did you have thoughts about it, Michael? I'm going to push you to talk about the visuals, which I know you've said before that you don't like doing. Um, I liked the visuals. I I liked, yeah, I, I pretty much liked all of the different artists who appeared in this run. Um, I think there's almost too many of them to give a very like overall definitive. Uh, I I do very much like the note that except for the guest issue written by someone else entirely, uh, Dematius has no word bubbles for Silver Surfer or thought bubbles for Silver Surfer throughout. So we get like, we're always at a distance from the de-emotional Silver Surfer. I like that. And the fact that Garney is very consistent in portraying him visually as mostly emotionless. 
mm-hmm. is like given how much of like Silver Surfer's body is so present to make him devoid, reasonably devoid of emotion in his physical movement, I think is maybe harder than it sounds. It's so interesting to me, different ways that he gets visualized. I mean, a lot of people really like the Jack Kirby Silver Surfer, and I do too, but he's very sort of bulky and muscular. And it's just, I like sort of mm, the fluidity of the Bushima version a little bit better. And then this version takes it to, again, like a much more delicate, vulnerable place that I really enjoyed. And even the way that, again, I think that Grummet does a really good job as well, and his style is, is quite similar the way he's done Silver Surfer here, but just the delicacy with which, you know, Garney does stuff like the ways that the silver shine works on his body. I mean, there's a, like a fluidity mm. and almost like a tear-like quality to the way mm-hmm. that he renders that shine, which is very different than how I think about him being rendered when someone like Ron Lim is drawing Silver Surfer, where he'll, he'll do him with like bright shine marks, right? This isn't that. This is... I don't. I mean, again, it works with his sadness, right? The way like his silver shine is almost sort of dripping off his body in certain scenes, and they do. Mm-hmm. And he's colored quite pale as well. He's not sort of this dark silver color. He's almost sort of white and colorless in a lot of these scenes, which I thought was very affecting as well. Yeah, I really like. Um, I mean, this is an argument for Silver Surfer in general, but he's basically an, an artist's dummy, right? Like mm-hmm. y- you have none of the mm-hmm. sort of distractions of like clothes and stuff like that. So what you're mm-hmm. getting is this like perfect posturing, uh, an opportunity to really perfect that element and its ability to convey emotion. Um, and as you guys have already said, Garney does that really, really well. And there's something very kind of like raw or pure about that that i really enjoy yeah i mean how much he communicates through body posture and framing when he doesn't necessarily have access to sort of a full range of emotions on the silver surfer's face but gives him such sad eyes oh my god those sad eyes and like the pouty (laughs) sad lips it's just like oh this is like a silver sad boy that appeals to me yeah (laughs) it's interesting that um there are some heavily sexualized female depictions in this but not Mm -hmm. alicia for the most part Mm -hmm. that she's kept she's not put into male gaze at least not very often in this run yeah for sure and i mean that's not necessarily true of her character throughout her history but i i don't know what i want to say about that in terms of the ways that it's bound up in her character as a very pure character in a lot Mm. of ways. And that's good and bad again, especially when we're linking it to sort of disability metaphors. Um, But at the same time, it's important that Alicia gets to be sexual in this series, that she gets to have a sexual relationship with the silver surfer, I think matters because as much as that spiritual bond can be very affecting, I think making it a physical bond matters as well, both in terms of the desexualization of like male sexuality in general in the superhero genre, but also the desexualization of all types of disabled bodies. So I think that the actualization Mm -hmm. of the relationship matters in that context. And again, it happens right after the issues that we read but it does happen um any other thoughts about starlin though because we we sort of talked about camp but we didn't talk about it like that much did you have other thoughts about his visual style andrew from this run of comics just one small thing i I, it's a trick he goes to a lot and i've seen a lot of other um pencilers imitate it since when going cosmic um where you'll have your panels contained within the image and then you'll have this like unframed image Mm. of like a character in silhouette um 
just like as if they're narrating the panels and that creates this kind of sense of them adrift in space and the panels as moments in time drifting around their consciousness. I like that. That That's sort of a, I don't know, psychoplanetary visual metaphor that I think is really effective. Yeah, I mean, there's a big Ditko influence going on here, which he directly Strange, alludes yeah. to. Yeah, and mm. I mean, when I think about those cosmic faces with sort of universes inside them, I mean, you think about... Ditko's depiction of eternity, right? You know, as a being mm. made up of like space, right? And yeah, like, I mean, that wonderful old Doctor Strange scene of Dormammu attacking eternity and disappearing into the eternity of his body is just, anyway, definitely a Ditko influence here. And that sort of mm, face with the stuff inside of it is something that you see in some Ditko comics, like some of the, um, like Marvel Atlas era stuff. Um, I've seen that there, but yeah, definitely mm. something that is heavily used here as well. And I hope I'm right about that and not a total liar because it's been quite a while <laughs> no since idea. I've read any of that stuff. You're definitely um, right that it predates Starlin then. So you've got me. Beat. Yes. Well, okay. <laughs> any kind of final thoughts, things you're desperate to talk about that we haven't talked about? I know our conversation has been a bit loose today, but we had a lot to cover in both of these comics and there's a lot more that we could talk about if you want. I haven't heard much in terms of um, your take on Warlock, Anna, and, and why you think it compares well to Surfer and what kind oh. of um, interested you about it. <sighs> yeah, I'm always interested in these characters that are kind of investigating masculinity, and I think he's a character that does that as well. I mean, this is such a big question, Andrew. I should have had like a better answer to this. I mean, I've been interested in his relationship with Gamora in some later comics, which does some of that, you know, taking a female character along for the adventure and like showing her the wonders of space kind of a thing. Although, again, it falls into tropes as well. And, you know, your mileage on that is really going to vary. I think it's just that raw passion of it that I mentioned before, because I really like that about Silver Surfer too. I mean, I was going back and reading some of the Stan Lee, John Bushima, like Silver Surfer comics, and they are not as good as I remember. But at the same time, some of the opening pages where Silver Surfer just being so dramatically sad, collapsed on his surfboard with his arms thrown <laughs> across his face and sort of the dramatic emotionality of that, I think is something that we see carry through, carried through to a character like Warlock, who is allowed to be so overtly passionate. And I really respond mm -hmm. to that. And that makes me very interested by that character because I don't like when superhero comics try to kind of deny that element of themselves. And we'll see kind of in the post Bronze Age comics, you know, moving into the grim and gritty age, a lot of that kind of stamped out. I mean, not so much in the pages of X-Men, but a lot of in a lot of kind of other types of comics that get stamped out as we get increasingly serious and increasingly violent and increasingly angry. So when I see something like this, that's really self-reflexively interrogating what it means to be a hero and specifically a masculine male hero that's very intriguing to me about this character the fact that he's kind of like muscly david bowie in space also appeals to me michael any final thoughts from you things that you're desperate uh, to talk about before we leave these comics behind a very minor one uh there is a character who is affiliated with the uh surfer cult uh call named sorrentino and I love that everyone else in the cult just wears street clothes, but she's like, no, this is my chance to put on <laughs> a superhero costume and I'm going to do it. <laughs> oh. 
she is awesome and yeah her story doesn't necessarily go anywhere which is unfortunate (laughs) but i appreciate her strong showing visually at the very least So as always, we're going to end the episode with some recommendations for reading related directly or tangentially to things that we read for this month. So uh, Michael, I'll let you take first crack at it. Yes, uh, I would like to recommend the recent Beta Ray Bill limited series by written and penciled by Daniel Warren Johnson. Uh, It isn't quite as, there isn't as quite as much depth on the narrative side as some of these stories. And I'm not a particular fan of the way it portrays the uh, Beta Ray Bill SIF relationship, but it is very visually fascinating. And if you're looking for another sad space boy story, uh, it's a good one. <laughs> I was the pages that I've seen from that have been pages involving SIF, and I was wondering what was going on there. But I definitely am going to have to check that out. Um, Andrew, a recommendation from you. Uh, I'm going to go rogue because I'm the only human being I know who liked this run uh, and recommend Brian Michael Bendis's run on Guardians of the Galaxy, um, his later run in which Kitty <laughs> Pride and Ben Grimm join up because it made me happy to see Kitty having just a completely physical relationship with a dude that she didn't have to worry about emotional consequences. And it made me really happy to see Ben Grimm get to see outer space. And there's a glee to the characters that I thought was kind of infectious, but I am alone in liking this book. So, oh no, I, I don't, I don't have, a, I don't have a hostility towards it at all. I mean, it had fun moments and stuff, and I've read it as well. So, like, no, that's a per- perfectly okay. valid explanation, perfectly valid recommendation, Andrew. Thank you. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, no, actually, that does sound very good, framed in those lights. And honestly, I might give it a reread. Yeah, I like. Wow. That idea. Wow. All right. I sold one person. <laughs> My recommendation, I'm going to recommend another Silver Surfer thing, which is the Silver Surfer graphic novel Homecoming, um, written by Jim Starlin and penciled by Bill Reinhold. It is from 1991. I have no idea whether it's available on Marvel Comics Unlimited. I have a digital copy that I got in possibly less than legal means many years ago but um it's a story about uh, like many silver surfer stories it's a story about him returning home to zen law and there's kind of this evil brain that has taken over the planet and moon dragon is there and they end up having to fight a brain and there's romance and loss and tragedy and philosophy and it merges starlin and silver surfer so what a perfect recommendation for our topics today so that is it for this month thank you so much for joining us next we will be talking about fangs by sarah anderson paired with unnatural volume one by mirka and dolfo we're looking forward to talking about those we'll see you in 30 days time